The David Rubenstein Podcast is sponsored by Wells Fargo. Nuveen is an asset manager striving to invest in the futures of Hispanic and Black Americans, and they're working to create products and services focused on generational investing for diverse communities around the country. At Wells Fargo, we're helping our clients forge what's next. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. One of the most influential figures in the world of philanthropy is Darren Walker. He currently heads the Ford Foundation and has revolutionized its giving. He also is an influential figure in the world of culture and arts. I had a chance to sit down with him recently to talk about how he rose from very modest circumstances in Texas to become such a leading figure in the worlds of philanthropy, culture, and art. So, Darren, as the head of the Ford Foundation, you're one of the most important people in the world of philanthropy. But tell us, how has the world of philanthropy changed because of COVID? Well, I'm not sure I agree that I'm the most important. I think I am part of a constellation of people who are lucky enough to lead foundations like Ford or Rockefeller, MacArthur, any of the great legacies. But COVID has absolutely impacted how we do our work both internationally and domestically. Uh, Let's start with internationally. Uh, The reality of this moment is that we are seeing tremendous inequality in the ways in which Uh, Vaccines are being distributed, uh, the ways in which they're being manufactured, uh, and the issues around cost, intellectual property, which are profound and are having a tremendous negative impact, uh, especially for people in Africa and much of the global South. In the United States, we know that COVID has meant that communities that are uh, historically the most vulnerable uh, are doubly uh, uh, impacted because of COVID. Um, and so what that has meant for philanthropy is that we've had to double down in some ways um, and also recognize that in the, in the United States, uh, the COVID moment uh, has coincided with the George Floyd racial reckoning moment. And that has brought into stark relief um, the challenges for people of color, especially in low-income communities. Okay, let's talk about the Ford Foundation and something you've done that's innovative to deal with COVID. So when COVID came, you convinced the Ford Foundation trustees and some others we'll talk about to borrow money. You went out and borrowed a billion dollars. Why did you need to do that? Well, we needed to do that because as you recall, at the beginning of COVID back in March and April of 2020, the markets were very choppy. And what I was concerned about was on the one hand, on the need side, we were hearing from many arts organizations Uh, organizations working on food security and direct services, that they were uh, in uh, huge distress. Remember, arts organizations had closed their doors. There was no revenue. Uh, The nonprofit fundraisers had been canceled. Uh, Donors were beginning to get a little uh, nervous about pledges. So we would see the need to increase our spending, while at the same time, uh, our, uh, our denominator, our endowment, was going down in value. And I'd seen that happen in, uh, in the last uh, uh, down market cycle where the need went up and our endowment went down. So in order to really address the need side while maintaining, I think, good fiscal responsibility of managing the endowment, um, and of course, because of uh, the luck of, of having Jerome Powell in charge of the Fed and basically announcing in the middle of uh, March that money was free, I mean, 
basically. Um, and what happened with the yield curve made it really quite possible for us to think about debt as opposed to taking money out of the endowment. And so it was really just a, a matter of arbitrage in some well, ways. Was it hard to convince your trustees to do that? Initially, they, they thought it was out of the box, of course, because, because no foundation had done that before. But once, especially the investment committee, uh, started to think about uh, the options, it became clear that it was the right. best option. Were you able to get other large foundations to do the same in terms of borrowing money? There were a number of foundations who have done this, uh, MacArthur, uh, Kellogg, um, Doris Duke, um, and we now have probably eight or 10 who have issued bonds. But the bigger message was that we needed to do more, that simply going by the IRS minimum of 5% payout in the time of COVID, at a time ultimately when we had more money than ever, uh, it simply was not more morally defensible to spend 5%. So let's talk about George Floyd. You mentioned him earlier. You've lived through the civil rights revolution in the 60s and we had the post-civil rights efforts in the 70s and 80s, but it seems as if not until George Floyd was murdered did some people in the corporate world and the government take seriously the discrimination and other challenges that African-Americans faced. Is it that your perception that George Floyd had an incredible impact more than you might have thought one murder might have had? Well, I think what was different, David, was that first, we were all at home as a country, and secondly, this was fully videotaped from the moment he was uh, put on the ground uh, till his last breath. Uh, and that it was photographed, uh, that it was videotaped, uh, and that the perpetrator was fully aware uh, that he was killing someone and clearly assumed that he could do that uh, with impunity. I think that is what we Americans, the average American, found so appalling and so antithetical to our values as a people. And so it had a huge impact uh, far beyond the issue of policing and civil rights to the boardroom. You think it will be enduring? In other words, the boardroom now, there's a big effort to have more African-Americans and more women on boards, but do you think that will last or is it just for a short period of time after the George Floyd murder? Well, there's no doubt that uh, some of the rhetoric from uh, some CEOs was performative. Uh, but I believe that we are seeing a real paradigm shift where we understand that uh, diversity in the boardroom is more than one. You know, I'm, I'm been a member of some public company boards and there was a time when there would be one black and one Hispanic and that, and maybe one or two uh, white women and you had diversity. I think now we understand that that's really tokenism. Diversity is fully embracing the idea of, of the intersection of talent and representation and that you can get both. Do you think discrimination against African-Americans is greater than discrimination against people who are gay? I think that race is a very challenging um, feature of American life. And when you look at the, pro the progress of uh, LGBT, when I mean, you think about something like marriage equality, uh, which polled uh, in the low double digits uh, as recently as 15 years ago, and now a majority of Americans support. Um, I think part of the reason for the progress was because most Americans, most white Americans could relate. They could relate to Ellen DeGeneres coming out 
um, on ABC on national TV because she was the girl next door that they'd fallen in love with for five seasons. Um, they could relate to some of the people who were on the front lines leading the efforts uh, and the marches. Um, they, they knew that these uh, young people uh, were their children and grandchildren. It is harder on the issue of race. And it's because uh, in this country, uh, we have a, a difficult history. Uh, I love the United States of America because I know that there is no country in the world where my story would be possible. I revere the Founding Fathers in spite of their flaws because they made it possible to actually fix the problems they didn't have the courage or the will to. And so I believe that we have to deal with that fundamental history, the contradictions and complexity of this country. Our sponsor, Wells Fargo, recently spoke to Jose Manaya, CEO of Naveen, about how his company is serving the retirement needs of diverse communities. My parents emigrated here from the Dominican Republic. I grew up in Washington Heights in Inwood. My dad was a cook. My mother was a housekeeper at a hotel. They came here with a dream of having a better life for their kids. They barely had a bank account. The concept of a 401k was not there. We are in a retirement crisis in this country. We have an opportunity to help the Hispanic and African-American communities retire with dignity. If you just looked at the U.S. Latinos, they'd be the fifth largest GDP in the world. Nuveen is an asset manager. Our business is about trust. When I think about generational investing, I think about stability and lower volatility. So we think about the long term. What's interesting about our relationship with Wells Fargo is we share similar goals. At Wells Fargo, we're helping our clients forge what's next. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You serve on a number of corporate boards. What is your view on whether CEOs have a responsibility to their shareholders or to the public to give their views on important public policy issues? Well, there is no doubt that being a public company CEO today is one of the hardest jobs in America. Uh, along with being uh, president of a university, there's no harder job. I do think that this move that the Business Roundtable uh, has started to advance away from shareholder uh, capitalism to a stakeholder capitalism is better. Uh, it means that we won't be uh, slavishly, singularly focused on the issue of shareholder value and the price of stock uh, as the metric for success of a company. Doesn't mean that that, that's, that has to be primary and important, but you have to take into consideration the needs and concerns of the other stakeholders, which often does uh, come down on occasion to social issues. And I think it is 
hard to navigate that. And each company has to make its own decisions. But my view on it is as corporate boards become more diverse, as the C-suite becomes more diverse, it's gonna be harder to ignore uh, these kinds of social issues. Do you have any interest in ever running for office or anything? No, I'm not qualified uh, temperamentally or otherwise to be an elective office. Uh, I admire our uh, elected officials and I admire the idea of public service. And I regret that in our country, this idea of service uh, seems to have been denigrated. We have lost that in our country, and I think this is deeply regrettable. Let's talk about how you became the head of the Ford Foundation and your background. So uh, you're not from New York City, is that right? Oh, I am definitely not from New York City. I, I was born um, in a charity hospital in uh, Crowley, Louisiana, a little town um, not far, I guess, from Lafayette and Baton Rouge. And you were raised by a single mother? Yeah. Was. And you grew up in Texas more than Louisiana, is yeah, that right? Yeah, we moved to uh, Ames, Texas when I was a little boy. And you went to University of Texas? I did, indeed. I, I'm proud to say, David, that I have never attended a day of private education in my life. From Head Start through law school, uh, public education was the path. So you went to University of Texas. How did you do there? I did okay. Were you elected president of the student government or something? I was, I, I, I was uh, the head of a number of organizations and I was very lucky because I, uh, I lived at a time uh, in this country when I knew, uh, in spite of the challenges that uh, I faced uh, as a boy, as a young uh, man, that my country was cheering me on. I never for a moment felt that my dreams and aspirations could not be achieved. And I never felt that America didn't want anything for me but success. And so, uh, it, yes, I, I had a great run in college and law school that brought me to New York, uh, but I, the, the, the tailwinds were, were with me. But you must have suffered some discrimination in Texas or Louisiana as an African-American. Uh, was it difficult or was it not? Of course, uh, there were many occasions, countless occasions, when uh, I faced uh, discrimination, I mean, or when I faced people saying things to me that were uh, heartless and, and harmful and, and difficult to hear. I mean, I recall in high school when I won an election uh, for student council and the, the person I, uh, or a friend of the person who uh, lost to me told me that uh, no matter how successful I might be in the future, going off to the University of Texas, et cetera, uh, that the uh, most successful black man in America would always be below the least successful white man in America. So I was told this when I was 16. Uh, imagine uh, hearing that, but also who taught a 16-year-old uh, that idea? Uh, and, and so I think about that when you ask questions like this, you know, did you face? Sure, I did. But what I actually worry about is that that kind of thinking is instantiated uh, in some segments of our society, which is so harmful to our democracy. So you graduated from the University of Texas Law School, and rather than stay in Texas, you headed to New York, and you went to a very, very famous law firm, Cleary Gottlieb, and did you want to be a great corporate law partner? What did you want to be? No, I didn't want to be. What I wanted not to be ever again was poor. 
I did not want to be poor. And when you grow up uh, on the precipice uh, of an economic um, collapse in your own family, uh, it leaves you, uh, it leaves an indelible mark. When you are a kid and you're waiting for your mother to pick you up at school after uh, a debate tournament and she never turns up and you walk home and you find out it's because her car was repossessed. Um, that leaves a, a profound mark uh, on your psyche. And so to be completely candid, I didn't want to be poor. And I didn't choose uh, a career path to Wall Street because I loved the law or when I left to go to UBS because I loved uh, asset-backed uh, collateral. Uh, I like the idea of some semblance of financial security for me and my family. All right. So you made some money at Cleary Gottlieb, and then you went to UBS. And you were in the financial services world, as it's now called. But then you left to go work in a nonprofit in Harlem. Why did you do that? Because for me, it was never about piling up money. Um, for me, it was ultimately about service. All right, so you did that for a number of years, and then you joined the Rockefeller Foundation, then you rose up to be in charge of various international programs. Then you were recruited to go to the Ford Foundation. I went to Ford as a vice president. Uh, Ford was a much larger foundation. It's about three times the size of Rockefeller. So it was a lateral move, but I had a bigger remit. Okay, so Ford was looking for a new president, and you were one of the candidates. And as I understand it, you went into the interview and said, I'm gonna change this completely if I get this job. I'm gonna focus on social inequality and make everything dealing with social inequality our focus. Is that right? Yeah, so what I said was the foundation was uh, too uh, disparately uh, organized and that we had lost our focus and that we needed uh, a single North Star for our work, which we did not have and had, had really never had. Right. So when you got the position, all of a sudden Ford announced, guess what? We're going to focus only on inequality and, and then so forth. What did your typical uh, recipients of your aid say? Well, part of it is just stepping back and asking why did we focus on inequality? And the reason uh, I believed inequality was important was because of our mission. A, a part of our mission as established by Henry Ford II was to strengthen democracy and democratic practice in the U.S. and abroad. I believe that among the greatest threats to our democracy is growing hopelessness. And hopelessness occurs in societies where there are high is high level of inequality. And so the correlation of inequality and hopelessness is what is a threat to our mission. And so the goal was to get people to understand no matter what you're working on, if it is having some impact on poor people because of the growing inequality in the world. Okay, it's one thing though, you get the job, you convince the board to do this, but then you have to do the work of convincing your staff people to actually change what they've been doing for so many years. And was that hard to do? Uh, it, it was not without difficulty. It was not without uh, some long-term employees uh, leaving the foundation. It was not without uh, some long-term um, grant uh, organizations uh, leaving, the or leaving the foundation. Did you feel you needed security? Uh, for well, no, it's, it's, I mean, David, the, the, the role of a foundation leader like, uh, like me uh, is one of great privilege. Uh, and I say that with all humility, because this is not 
about me as a person. This is about the job I hold. I am under no uh, uh, fantasy uh, uh, or misunderstanding of why, as you say, I may be in demand. I'm not in demand because Darren Walker is that interesting of a person. I'm in demand because I'm president of the Ford Foundation. And when I am no longer president of the Ford Foundation, I can assure you I'll have lots more time to have dinner with you. In the United States, in the early part of the 20th century, and then in the mid part of the 20th century, wealthy people like uh, John D. Rockefeller or Henry Ford set up foundations where they would take their stock or other assets and put it in a foundation. And then the foundation would be to some extent controlled for a while by families, but then eventually the families would not be controlled. In the Ford Foundation case, Henry Ford famously got off the foundation board many decades ago because he wasn't happy, it is said, with the Ford Foundation. Now you've re-engaged with the Ford family. Was that hard to do? Uh, Henry Ford II left the board in 1976, and it is true that he uh, was happy about a lot of the work of the Ford Foundation, but he was unhappy. Uh, he was unhappy because the work that we did in the American South uh, to advance uh, integration uh, and to uh, support efforts to uh, to deem illegal uh, discriminatory practices um, was a problem because Southern dealers felt uh, the displeasure of Southern consumers. So Henry Ford II was hearing from Ford Motor Company dealers okay. uh, that their consumers didn't want to buy our cars. So he decided to leave. Um, we have been independent of the Ford family and Ford Motor Company for over six decades. I believed that it was critically important for us to re-engage the Ford family. This is where the money came from. It was important to re-engage in the city of Detroit, uh, and this is why we played a pivotal role in that bankruptcy. Re-engaging with the Ford family was easy. Uh, Bill Ford and his mother, uh, Martha Firestone Ford, are among the most amazing people I know, and they were happy to uh, re-engage. And so we, two years ago, elected Henry Ford III, um, the grandson of Henry Ford II, to our board. Our sponsor, Wells Fargo, recently spoke to Jose Manaya, CEO of Naveen, about how his company is serving the retirement needs of diverse communities. My parents emigrated here from the Dominican Republic. I grew up in Washington Heights in Inwood. My dad was a cook. My mother was a housekeeper at a hotel. They came here with a dream of having a better life for their kids. They barely had a bank account. The concept of a 401k was not there. We are in a retirement crisis in this country. We have an opportunity to help the Hispanic and African-American communities retire with dignity. If you just looked at the U.S. Latinos, they'd be the fifth largest GDP in the world. Nuveen is an asset manager. Our business is about trust. When I think about generational investing, I think about stability and lower volatility. So we think about the long term. What's interesting about our relationship with Wells Fargo is we share similar goals. At Wells Fargo, we're helping our clients forge what's next. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. 
Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, as I mentioned earlier, what happened is a lot of prominent people, when they get to be 60, 70, maybe 80, they would set up these foundations. But now a lot of people have gotten very wealthy in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they don't set up these traditional foundations. They just kind of give away the money in different ways that's maybe not having a board like yours operate. Is that the new model, which is to do, say something like uh, uh, what's being done with, uh, um, let's say, uh, the Jeff Bezos fortune? He's giving away money. His former wife is giving away money in different ways. Is that a new model, or you think the traditional model, the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, will stay as the, the model for large uh, philanthropic foundations? I think the model of, of philanthropy over many decades uh, will continue to exist. But the exciting thing about this moment is that there are new models. Um, and you mentioned two really terrific one, what Jeff Bezos is doing, as well as Mackenzie Scott, uh, what Lorreen Powell Jobs or the Chan Zuckerbergs are doing. All of these are part of a landscape of philanthropic pluralism, which we should celebrate. No country in the world has the diversity of ways of giving as we do in the United States. So I celebrate uh, every time a new foundation is created in whatever form. Let's suppose you're not a billionaire, but you're just an average person. Why should you want to give away your money? You worked hard to get this money. Why not just buy things that for you and your family? Well, first of all, uh, some of the best philanthropists in this country are small uh, donors. Uh, they uh, understand what it is like to work really hard. And for many of them, um, they don't have a lot of disposable income, and yet they give. They give to their church, they give to their food pantry, they give to their homeless shelter. Um, and that is because in this country, there is uh, a, a civic imperative uh, of the individual to do what he or she can to make a difference in improving our communities. So uh, I, I celebrate those small, um, impactful donors. But I also, though, worry that for uh, many uh, wealthy people, uh, the idea of giving uh, often is not driven by um, uh, a sense of uh, just making a difference, but it's making a difference with strings attached. Uh, it's making a difference, but doing it uh, the way I want it done rather than what um, the experts might say. And so it's that calibration that concerns me. You and I serve on the National Gallery of Art Board, and every art institution I know of wants you to serve on their board, and you're very involved in the art world. What is it about art that attracts you? Well, art is essential in a democracy. David, art is so important. We know what art does to young people. We know that uh, exposure to art uh, brings about uh, higher levels of empathy. Um, it helps people uh, understand how other cultures, other people live. Um, and it just brings out the kind of humanity in all of us. There are times when I have observed leaders uh, use uh, language that is inhumane while talking about other human beings, while, while talking about the world. Um, and I think to myself, this person has clearly never engaged in beautiful poetry. They've never uh, listened uh, to 
the words of a great playwright. They've never uh, sat and reflected uh, on a beautiful painting or picture. Um, because if they uh, had been really uh, educated, had they really been exposed to the arts, um, they wouldn't find it possible to use this kind of language when talking about other human beings. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.